Hi, my name's Kevin. Today we're gonna to be talking about getting tough stains out of your carpet. And this looks like a coffee stain. So one of the things that we found around here at our church facilities that works really good for taking stains out of carpet such as this. And this is an idea that you can take and use at your own house for coffee stains, Kool-Aid, dog pet stains, um, is to use a few very basic products. Today we're gonna to use a, uh, a nice white fluffy towel and a bucket of water. There's nothing in the water. And we're gonna saturate the towel and drop it onto the stain. And we're gonna leave it like that for about 15 minutes. We would then come back in 15 minutes, turn the towel over, and what you'll find is that the stain will wick up into the towel, and before you know it, the stain will be completely gone. All right, let's take a look and see how it's worked. There you go, look at that. Stain is out, and we're ready to go. So join us again next week as we talk more about renovating both your home and your life. Hello, Heritage. I want to welcome all of you at each of our locations, Rock Island, Bettendorf, QC West, those joining us online, thanks for being here. If you're a guest, I especially want to welcome you. This is week four of our Renovate series, where we're just having some fun exploring realities in life and family with the helpful metaphor of a house, where each room of the house represents an area of our lives, and we're looking to see which of those rooms might be in need of some renovation. And this weekend, we're stepping into the family room. But before we do that, I want to take a moment and bring you up to speed on some of our journey as it relates to the Erickson School Building. As many of you know, last fall, God led us to pursue the purchase of the Erickson Elementary School Building in Moline. He did that for two reasons. One, for us to strategically reposition our Hispanic campus, Vida Nueva, into that facility for greater impact. And the second was to pursue developing community-based ministries that will help us love and serve the people of the Floresciente neighborhood as well as surrounding communities. And what God did with just some crazy cool things, and he did it in a way that only he could. So at the end of last year, we were positioned by him to participate in a public auction where we were the only ones who showed up. <laughs> and in that auction, the minimum bid had been set at $50,000 for the building and nearly all of its contents. And so we secured the winning bid for that facility and nearly all of its contents for $50,000. Look. Take it one step further. Months before, as we were casting this vision and sharing this vision with our district leadership, they were so committed to it and so excited about it, they said, we're going to give you a grant. And they declared amount, an amount for that, well before we even knew we'd get the building. Guess, get what the, guess what the amount was for? $50,000. Our God gave us that building. And I love telling that story because there's no way to tell that story where he doesn't get the credit. Or he doesn't get the glory because his fingerprints are all over it. It was his hand that has facilitated that journey. And I'm excited about this next season. So the deal is, we're looking to strategically reposition Vida Nueva into that facility and to develop these community-based ministries. But that's going to take some time. In fact, we won't, we won't actually close on the building until the end of the school year. We won't have it until school's out. And there's going to be a process that we're following. And so it'll actually take months for us to do this right because we want to do it well. And we're actually in a window of about 30 to 60 days where we're just seeking to listen. We're listening to the community. 
We're listening to community leaders and key influencers because we want to make sure that what we are doing doesn't actually do harm while we try to do good. And from the input we're going to receive, we'll finalize and complete our plan that allows it to be comprehensive in helping us really meet real needs in the right way. And I don't want you to misinterpret this season and and the seemingly lack of movement or, or little movement as if nothing's happening. Because this is a vital time for us to stay in step with God and to make sure what we're doing is not only the right thing, but done in the right way, meeting real needs in real ways. So here's what I want to continue to ask you to do. I need you to continue to pray. Pray that God would continue to go before us, that he would give us wisdom, that he would continue to provide what we need to step in obedience with him. If you've already been praying, thank you for that. Keep praying. If you haven't been praying, please join us in praying and interceding that God would do those things. And if in this process you're already starting to feel your heart stirred to give towards this reality, because the deal is it's going to take about $400,000 just for us to retrofit the building and bring it up to code. Not to mention the greater vision pieces that ripple out from the whole thing. But if you're feeling God stirring you to to give towards this, go ahead and do that. In fact, the easiest way to do that is just to use our regular tithing envelopes and, and to mark on the inside vision fund. And and put that in there, and that's exactly where those resources will go. So please be praying. If God's stirring you to give, go ahead and start doing that. We will give you more information. We'll keep you apprised as we continue in the journey. And there will be actually more opportunities to come, different ways to engage, because we're getting ready to move into a new community in a new area to reach more people with the good news of Jesus. And that's not only something we have to do, it's something we get to do. Because as long as there is one person in our community that doesn't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our work is not yet what? Done. Done. Are you with me? Make sense? All right, cool. We'll keep you in the loop. Let's step back into Renovate. We've been in a a journey for a few weeks where we're walking through a process understanding that we all have rooms in our life, areas of our life that are in need of some renovation. They need some repair. They, They need to be made new. And we started this journey by jumping into the family room to really deal with relationships. And then we moved into the home office where we started talking about stewardship and what we value. And last week we stepped into the kitchen to talk about marriage. And next weekend we're going to the bedroom where we're going to have an honest PG-13 conversation about God's view of sex and intimacy. And parents, I want to let you know it's your discretion. PG, you you get to choose. But I encourage you to have your kids here, your middle schoolers and up, because they're already talking about this stuff. And we're going to have a great time digging into God's Word. It's going to be fun, going to be impactful. You don't want to miss it. In fact, invite your neighbors, invite your friends, say, hey, come to church. We're talking about sex. So it's a great opportunity to do that. We're doing that next week. But this weekend, we're stepping into the family room. And the family room is kind of one of the more unique rooms in the house for me, because it's a place where intimate, influencing relationships happen. It's kind of the place that we get to just hang out and be ourselves. We play games, we fold laundry, we do homework, we watch TV, and it's kind of the place where, where life and family and the world all intersect. Whether it's through the TV, whether it's just doing life together, and it's a place where key influencing intimate relationships happen. And it's different than the living room. See, the living room is typically more formal. It's focused more on the adult and and typically isn't even focused on the next generation. In fact, when I was growing up and we went to Grandma Morgan's house, we weren't allowed in her living room as kids. 
It was the room that had the most expensive furniture, the most expensive knickknacks. Everything was covered in plastic until it was being used by the adults. And we weren't allowed to touch, play, or disrupt anything in that room. And I get it. It wasn't really mean because we were rowdy, rambunctious kids, and they had an adult thing going on in there. But that was the living room. But the family room's different. The family room is a place where we can hang out, we can be ourselves, we can ask questions, we can play games, we can wrestle, and we can learn. And it's a place where there is great potential to position others, especially the next generation, for more. It's one of the most effective places to parent and grandparent because it has the potential to add value to life. And, and that's important because we all want our lives to have value. We all want our lives to have value. We want our lives to matter. We want to have impact. It's true for parents and it's true for grandparents. But the family room conversation, listen, is not just for those who have kids. It's for all of us because we all have people in our lives that we can invest in. It may be our kids, maybe our grandkids, but it could be the neighbor kid. It, it could be a more junior coworker or a fellow student who's a, a grade or two behind us. The, the family room conversation isn't about a particular age group or stage of life. It's for all of us. And we all want our lives to have value and to add value, to make an impact. And so we have to make the most of every opportunity because life is short. Not as short as maybe a fruit fly's life. Those buggers live like 40, 50 days and that's it. But if things go well for us in our physical bodies, then we could easily live till 80, 90, even 100 years. And that provides this beautiful context for significant generational impact. Beautiful context for deep and ongoing family room conversations that influence generations to come. A fruit fly's family room conversation looks much different because it's so limited. In fact, I came across a cartoon that captured a bit of this reality recently. It, it shows a, a family room couch and then there's an adult fruit fly, and next to that adult fruit fly is a juvenile fruit fly, and they're looking at a family photo album, and the caption captures the words of the adult fruit fly. I want to show it to you and read what he said. So you see him sitting there on the couch looking at the family photo album, and the adult fruit fly says, here I am being born, here I am showing you this picture, and now if you'll excuse me, I have to die. <laughs> That's funny. Some of you are like, aww. It's not sad, they're fruit flies. But listen, it helps illustrate a point for me because it's not about the amount of time. It's not about how much time we have. It's about what we do with the time we do have. And we all want our lives to matter. And the family room provides the context for a generational ripple. And it leads us, kind of begs a question for us to engage in. And it's why is connecting with the next generation a big deal? Why is it a big deal? Why are we taking one of five rooms and making it about this? Why are we talking about this? Why is connecting with the next generation such a big deal? Well, I think we, be we begin to answer that question when we understand a fundamental reality. 
that what we do now influences what others do next. What you and I do now influences what others do next. One of the greatest privileges and responsibilities that we have as humans is to invest in and to raise up the next generation. We can tend to think about those coming behind us, those younger, as, as maybe lesser, not as qualified, not as equipped, and therefore maybe not as important. But listen, that is not how God views the next generation. We may look at them as a people group who should be positioned to serve us, but, but Jesus says we, we should be positioning ourselves to serve them. And, and pastor, author, leadership guru John Maxwell once wrote these words that I think capture the heart of this. He said, true success comes only when every generation continues to develop the next generation. He's right. And his statement highlights that our investments matter. Who we influence can impact generations to come. And the reality is, it's for all of us. It's not just for parents. Because we all have people in our lives that we can invest in. It may be our kids or our grandkids, but it might be the neighbor or that coworker. And being intentional in this area is important because what we do now influences what others do next. And when we understand that principle and that reality, that will lead us to lean into another truth. That giving people what they want isn't as powerful as teaching them what they need. Giving people what they want isn't as powerful and as impactful as teaching them what they need. And I want to take a moment to look at this reality in the life of Jesus as he interacted with his disciples. In fact, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn or click to, to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 33, and we're picking up a point in Jesus' journey where he is literally laying low, trying to avoid people so he can invest in his disciples. It's in the town of Capernaum. And we can always learn from, from Jesus by what he taught and how he taught his disciples. And this is one of those places. Now, from the rest of Scripture, we know that a centurion built a synagogue in Capernaum for the Jews. In fact, that centurion's servant was later healed by Jesus. And within that synagogue, Jesus did a number of things. He frequently taught there. He cured a demon-possessed man. He, he spoke about the bread of life. He even restored the life of the daughter of one of the synagogue rulers. And one of the cool things is that archaeologists have found the remnants of that synagogue. They've even found about 100 feet away the remnants of Peter's house where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Capernaum's just a crazy cool place. In fact, we had the chance to go there on our last trip to Israel. And I want to show you just a few pictures to give you a sense of what was there and, and what was happening in that out of the context of Scripture. In fact, here's the first picture. This is, uh, you may notice a few things, actually. First is, this is a lame, touristy picture, where you take a picture of the sign of the place that you're at, Okay. But what makes this picture beautiful and exceptional is the lovely lady to the left side of the screen, my wife Beth. She beautifies it, makes it good. That's the first thing you may notice. Second thing you may notice is they misspelled Capernaum. But no, they didn't. Because Capernaum is actually attached to the Hebraic form of the same word, which means village of Nahum. And so it's actually just a different variation of the same place. The third thing you may notice is it says town of Jesus. 
And if you've done much study in Scripture in the life of Jesus, you're like, wait a second. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he grew up in Nazareth. What's with Capernaum? That wasn't his town. Listen, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has this moment where he reads from Isaiah, and he starts talking about who he is and the reality of him as Messiah, and, and the people didn't like it. They got so mad at him, they ran him up on top of a hill to throw him off kicked him out of town, and he, walked, he ended up walking through the crowd, got away. And, but, but from that point forward, he relocated to Capernaum. And, and the realities of this journey happen in Capernaum that we're looking at today. Now, here's the thing. We're heading back to Israel in late October, early November, and if you're interested, Beth and I are leading a trip. If you're interested in checking that out, I want you to just sign on the communication card, throw it in the offering plate when it comes by, and, and we'll get you information to see if that's something you want to do. But Capernaum is a crazy cool place. In fact, one of the other realities in there was there's a white stone synagogue, and it's, it's in almost immaculate condition. It's beautiful. But the thing about the synagogue is it's built on the remnants of the one the centurion built. In fact, the next picture shows uh, that there's the white stone on the right-hand side, but then there's that dark stone on the bottom, and that dark stone is the foundation from that first synagogue that the centurion built. It's just a cool place. And what we're reading today happened in that location. In fact, through my specific study and research of this passage, and just kind of looking down through the scripture, kind of a deep and exhaustive study of this passage, I've concluded that what we're reading about today actually took place in Capernaum, and I want to show you how I know that. So if you're in Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 33, let's check it out. They came to Capernaum. In the Greek, that means they came to Capernaum. I'm just that good. No, listen, I'm messing with you. So here we go. When he was in the house, Jesus, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And let's just hold there for a second. We all want our lives to have value, right? And the disciples not only wanted to be great, they wanted to know they were great. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And in that moment, what Jesus does, I mean, this is, this is countercultural, man. He's blowing up social norms and expectations and he was inverting things. In fact, everything that Jesus talked about, what we should be doing in his kingdom, it's, it's an upside down kingdom. It's totally inverted to what the world thinks. And in this moment, he was changing all that. So you want to be first, you need to be last and the servant of all. And he knew this was so important that he, he goes on in verse 36 and does something. He says he, t- he took a little child who he placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now something we need to understand about this is in, in this day, children were viewed more as property than people. They were to be seen and not heard, not that much unlike m- me and my grandma Morgan's living room. <laughs> But Jesus, in these moments, is turning the thinking on its head. He's, he's, he's replacing ambition to rule with ambition to serve. And he's moving from a thinking and is challenging his disciples to move from thinking about how, what others can do for them to thinking about what they can do for others. And God sent Jesus, and Jesus sends us to give people what they need, not just what they want. And the disciples, they wanted to be great and know it. But Jesus, once again, redefined value. He redefined purpose. He redefined greatness with a call to love and serve the next generation. 
And it's not a stretch to see his admonishment as a call to generational influence. Jesus wasn't limiting the call to just serving children. It wasn't about a demographic or an age group, but generations to come. And what he was saying wasn't just for parents. It's for all of us because we all have people in our lives that we can invest in. And I wonder who that is for you. So here's the thing, and perhaps you would agree with this, that I believe it's easy to leave an impression. It happens all the time, good and bad. It's easy to leave an impression, but more difficult to leave a legacy. Would you agree with that? Man, it's easy to leave an impression. In fact, last weekend, Matt Lair, as a guest speaker, was here to help us walk through the subject of marriage. And if you missed that, I encourage you to go to heritageqc.com, and under the media tab, you can see what you missed. But I met Matt a while back, and, and I've met him, just seen him a couple times, but last year I saw him at Chick-fil-A. I was there eating my Christian chicken, and I saw him walk in. Yeah, it is. And so, so I, I, he, he looked at me, and I waved, but he didn't respond. He just turned around and, and went about ordering his food. And I, I, for a moment, I thought, man, there's an issue. And that, well, now he's just getting his food. He'll, once he gets his food, he'll come over and say something. And, and it was actually Beth and I were there together. And so he, he got his food and he came towards us, but then he went and sat one table away with his back towards me. Now, you know me well enough that, when, that I'm thoroughly convinced when Jesus said, look, if, if you have been offended or you have committed an offense, you've got to go and have a conversation with those people. That's Matthew 18 and Matthew 5, all right? So I knew I had to go have a conversation. And so what I ended up doing is I, I knew I needed to leave my gift at the altar, my chicken sandwich, and I needed to go talk with him. So I did. I walked over. I came up behind him. I grabbed his elbow. And I said, excuse me, sir, would you settle down? You're disturbing all the rest of the customers. And he responded. He leaned back. He's like, oh, hey, I'm sorry about that. I get a little rowdy sometimes. And we're like, ha, 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 and laughed. And I said, so, hey, man, how's it going? How you doing? And he stopped me. He said, can I ask you a question? I'm like, oh, no, here it comes. There is an issue. He said, who do you think I am? I know who you are. You know, no, seriously, what's my name? I know your name. Don't mess with me. No, no, what's my name? I said, you're Matt. He said, no, I'm not. <laughs> he said, I'm his twin brother, Mike. <laughs> I said, no, you're not. <laughs> he said, yes, I am. I said, no, you're not, dude. You're not going to mess with me. You're trying to pull something over on me. You're not going to do it. You are Matt. He's like, no, I'm his identical brother, Mike. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> sure enough, he's got a twin. <laughs> it's so easy to make an impression. I made an impression, not the one I preferred, open mouth, insert foot. But it is so easy to make an impression. It is much more difficult to leave a legacy. And our Lord calls us to leave a legacy in his name. And he describes how we're supposed to do it in verse 35. He says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. That's, that's strong. That's clear. But let's go one more layer down in the family room conversation. How do we serve all? I think there's lots of ways to do that. But I am convinced that following Jesus requires courage to do what benefits the next generation. It requires a, a shift in thinking 
to, to have the courage to do what benefits the next generation, to live in the reality of generational ripples, to, to give what is needed, not just what is wanted, to live in a way that matters to the next generation. And I think that sets us up for our so what question. Why are we talking about this? Why is this important? How now do we live as a result of our discussion and study? And I think there are three things that we need to be considering observing, monitoring, pursuing, whatever you want to call it. Three things. And it's to stop, to save, or to start. And the first one is to stop a generational ripple. To stop a generational ripple. Look, we, we all have junk in our lives. We have all made mistakes and we've been impacted by the mistakes of others. And depending on the nature of that mistake and that junk, when those things pass from one generation to the next, it can become what we call generational sin. And it's a ripple that should be stopped. You may be keenly aware of this kind of reality in your life. For example, you may have had someone in your life who struggled in an addiction, and over time you've just adopted that same addiction, and now it's yours, and you carry it. Or perhaps someone in your life was abused, and they have since turned around and abused you. And that is tragic, and that is difficult, especially when it's done within families. It's generational sin. But I want you to know something. It can continue or it can stop. And you play a role in that. And I want to tell you how. But before we can do that, I think we need to reconcile uh, a perceived tension in Scripture. There's a couple of concepts in Scripture that seem to just be incongruent with one another. And they address the idea and the question of does sin, does sin pass down from one generation to the next or not? So let's take a look at the first scripture. This is Exodus 34, where the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. What is that saying? It's saying that sin carries from one generation to the next, from multiple generations into the future, that what we do now influences what others will do next. And that's scary. It's depressing. But look, it's not the whole picture. Let's look at another scripture. This is from Ezekiel. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. What's that saying? That sin doesn't carry from one generation to the next, that we're each responsible for our own junk. Now, okay, those seem to be at odds. So let's take a moment just to, to reconcile the tension. Look, we have to know and understand that we have within us a sin nature. It's a bent towards it. It's a default towards it. It's a proclivity towards it. It, came, it comes down from Adam and Eve all the way down through every generation. We have a bent towards sin, and without Jesus, we're stuck in it. But listen, we all have a choice. Every generation has a choice. And I want you to know, if you're a parent or a grandparent, I want you to understand this. If you have made a mistake, if you have fallen and stumbled into sin, it does not mean that your children or grandchildren will automatically be in the same place or suffer for it. They have a choice. There may be a 
collateral damage reality, depending on what you did and how that went down, but they have a choice. They have an individual choice. But here's the thing. If you remain in it, if you continue the pattern, if you advance the ripple, then they will have to deal with it. They will have to deal with, deal with it. They will be affected in some way. And their choice will likely be influenced by yours. But it's not a curse. It, we're not passing a curse. We, but here's the deal. We may not even be passing a blessing. If we don't stop the ripple, they have to deal with it. John Wesley made a statement that I think captures the reality around this concept. He wrote this, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. It's true. And it's just that simple. We can set our kids and our grandkids and others up for success or failure. So my challenge for all of us is be the one who stops an unhealthy ripple. Be the one who stops it. Forgive reconcile, turn from sin. What we do now influences what others do next. And you can be the one who stops it. In the power of Jesus, you can be the one who stops it. Look, remember we received that uh, instruction on stain removal at the beginning? Look, we all have stains. We all have sins. We've all made mistakes. And it really doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how dark that stain is, it doesn't matter how deep that stain goes. When you and I take the opportunity to surrender to Jesus, we find forgiveness. We enter the promise of eternal life and we begin to walk with God and everything changes. In the context of the home, look, Jesus is a gentleman and he will never force his way in. He won't even enter through the back door or through a window. He waits at the front door to be invited. And he wants to come in and he wants to enter every room and, and wick away every stain and make you new. But you have to be willing to invite him in. And if you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do that today because that is the most important thing you can do because it'll stop the generational ripples that need to be stopped. Stop the generational ripple. Are you, are you leaving stains or are you positioning Jesus to wick them away? Stop, but then also save a generational ripple. There are ripples in our lives that are good ripples. Not, not all of them are bad. In fact, even if we don't like them as kids, they're probably still good and they need to be continued. It's like what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 145. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. We need to save or sustain or continue those healthy ripples. One of the things that my parents did for my brother and I early on is that they made sure that we understood that the world did not revolve around us and we weren't the center of life. That they made it very clear that we, as part of the family, had privileges and we had responsibilities, but they also made it just as clear to say that, their, that our family and their marriage didn't revolve around us, and that's healthy. But I don't believe that's a ripple that we see or that has been saved very much today in many families. For many families, many parents design life and marriage around their kids, 
and it seems like a good way to give them value and opportunity, but it in reality sets a ripple that can make our kids selfish and focused on what they want rather than what they need. And healthy parenting keeps kids from being the center of life. And so we should limit commitments. And we don't say yes to everything. And we create space for healthy identity. And we as a church are committed to partnering with parents to do this. In fact, we're committed to to seeing kids move through three steps of their spiritual development. To incite wonder, to provoke discovery, and fuel passion. And we want to do that in partnership with parents. Equipping you to do what only you can do in your family room at home. In fact, I want to give you a resource. It's studio252.tv. It's a website. It's a great place to go and get information about lessons that we're teaching. There's even a really cool Parent Q app in there. And you can just track along and we can come alongside each other as the church and the family. And we can parent and we can invest in the next generation well together. There's other resources out there. Focus on the Family has good stuff. But studio252.tv is a place that will connect more directly to what's happening here in Heritage. And look, we can give our kids only what they want, or we can dig in and take time and invest in a process that helps them see what they truly need. And I wonder if you're giving kids what they want or what they need. What they want isn't as impactful as what they need. And when we set a ripple, a good ripple, we're doing work worth sharing, but it, but it takes time. So don't give up. Keep investing. Stop a ripple save a ripple. The third is to start a generational ripple. What is it that you need to start? To start a new level of health that ripples into generations to come. So that, as the psalmist says, the next generation would know them. Even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would, be, would tell their children, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. What do you need to start for that to be a reality? How do you need to position the next generation so that they can be the greatest generation? What is it that you can start? Investing in the next generation is done through inclusion, not exclusion. It's done in proximity, not by separation. Sharing life, sharing the good and the bad, the ups and the downs. And as Jesus demonstrated, that true greatness, that greatness that the disciples really wanted to experience, isn't found in exclusion, it's in inclusion and investing in those who are still yet to come. And the ripple of your investment today may not be realized now. It may not be realized for two or three generations. But keep investing. Don't stop when you don't see results. You know, one of the things that God has allowed me to be very intentional with in in raising my boys is to be um, specific in teaching them what, what authentic manhood really is. Because the world will say that you're a man when you can drive, when you drink, when you have sex, when you join the military. None of those truly define manhood. But that's what the world says. So what God has allowed me to do is to invest in them very specifically. Starting at age five, I started just, I took them out backpacking each at the age of five to start speaking into them about life and God. And I had a series of events and things that we did. In fact, here's a picture of one of our trips when Joshua was about 13, Daniel was about 10, and we were just out backpacking together, just sharing life, doing life together, running through different challenges. One of the high points of that journey for me as I developed these like rites of passage moments for my boys was at age 13, when they both hit 13, I took them out into the woods. I dropped them in the woods with one set of instructions to navigate from one point to another point. 
And what they ended up doing was spending the day on an entire adventure, traveling miles through the woods, meeting up with men along the way. So they'd get to the next point, they'd find a man who would speak into their life about an issue, kind of the things we're talking about with Renovate, about sex or finances or relationships or God. That man would give them new instruction, they'd go on to another spot, and they'd continue all the way around. Those men were their grandfathers, their youth pastor, men of influence in their life. And it was a grand adventure to kind of mark a journey for them. For me, though, I was taking and saving a ripple. My parents started with me, and I'm just moving it to a new level to start a new ripple that would go beyond. So they traveled through creeks and up hillsides and through obstacles, came back exhausted, but with a more clear understanding of what is important in life. What do you need to start? What has God positioned before you and who has he positioned so that you can start a ripple that matters for generations to come? What do you need to start? What do you need to stop? What do you need to save? And what do you need to start? Those things, all three of them, happen by his power only. We can't do those without him. And when, and when the power of God is at work in us, we each have the opportunity to live in the reality of generational influence. I want to encourage you to live in the reality of generational influence. When you and I impact a life in another generation, that influence is felt through generations yet to come. It, it, it's more than about a preservation. It's about an empowerment. And listen, leaving a legacy usually means two things. It means empowering the next generation, but often also means forgiving the last. And I want to encourage you to do both. Have the courage to do both. Empower the next generation and forgive the last. Start, save, and stop a ripple. What one generation embraces, the next generation will adopt. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Who will be different because of you? Who will be different because of the investment you make today and tomorrow and the months and years to come? Live in the reality of generational ripples. Live in a way that matters to the next generation. It may be for your kids or it could be for your spiritual kids, the, the people that the Lord has allowed you to have a partnership in leading to Him in relationship. Investing in the next generation adds value in both directions. That's why Jesus said, if you want to become great, you become the servant of all. Because when you value the next generation and you invest in others, then it actually adds value to your life. And I am glorified in it. Who will be different because of you? I want to leave you with one more excerpt from the Psalms. It's Psalm 102. Let this be recorded for future generations so that a people not yet born, a people not yet born, will praise the Lord. This is why we do what we do here at Heritage Church. This is why we talk about multiplying disciples and leaders and churches. So a people not yet born will praise the Lord. This is why we pursue the purchase of an elementary school in Moline. So people not yet born will praise the Lord. And God has positioned you with people around you that you can influence so that a people not yet born will praise the Lord. But it will require stopping, saving, and starting ripples that bring him honor and glory. My prayer is that we would all have the courage to do it, knowing that what we do now influences what others do next. Can you imagine what would happen 
Can you imagine what would happen if we lived as a people who positioned the, the next generation to be the greatest? I believe that's part of what it means to follow Jesus because the best is always yet to come when we do. And it comes as we invest in the next generation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather as your church. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the Bible, for the opportunity to read, to learn, to understand more about who you are, who he is, and our role in relationship to both of you. God, I pray that we would be a people who understand that what we do now influences what others do next, and that we would have the wisdom and the courage to stop an unhealthy ripple, to save and perpetuate a good one, or to start a new one that will ripple into generations to come. God, we need your power at work in us to do this. We're not going to do this on our own, but with you, all things are possible. And I pray that as my brothers and sisters lean into you and try to figure out who will be different because of your investment in, in them as a person so they can turn around and invest in somebody else, I pray, God, that you'd bring glory to yourself in that. You'd speak, and you would be able to do far more than we can ask or imagine as a people who are willing and, and have the courage enough to do what, what benefits the next generation and ultimately brings you glory. I love you, God. I thank you for the chance to have this conversation today. And as we head out, may you just continue to let us process what we need to know and understand to honor you. I love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen.